0: Oh hello! Welcome to the Afghanistan Podcast. Our next guest is Chimay Balusu, an undergraduate student at Columbia University, pursuing the life sciences and medical humanities. She's also the founder and CEO of Simply Neuroscience, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering students' interdisciplinary interests in the brain through neuroscience and psychology education, outreach, and awareness. Her numerously awarded research experiences involve aging, neurodegenerative diseases, cognitive neuroscience, traumatic brain injury, depression, and more conducted at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, Columbia University Department of Psychology, or the Block Institute for Research on Aging, with numerous publications. So we're going to be mindful about discussing those topics as well in this episode. Chimai is also alumni mentor at Society for Science and the Public Alumni College Mesh Program, PrEP mentor at the Double Discovery Center, team member of the Combated COVID-19 Challenge, at the New York Academy of Science and leadership board member of 500 Women Scientists. Also, a Taekwondo instructor and certified judge, a list of interesting topics to discover. And now I'm welcoming Chimayi on the podcast. Hello, Chimayi. Welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited
1: to be here and chat more today.
0: A lot of fascinating aspects of your research experience and public outreach to cover. We're gonna start up with a relevant issue, a current global one. How are you combating the COVID-19 challenge and which aspect of research are you involved in?
1: I would say that most of my research background lies in neuroscience and related fields. But since you know COVID isn't exactly in the mainstream, it is not directly related to neuroscience, I've still been trying to contribute. Through challenges, participating in sort of hackathon, challenge style, different workshops and trying to make solutions that can have an impact on local communities. So I know you touched upon how I was a part of the Combating COVID-19 Challenge through the New York Academy of Sciences. That was one of my recent projects that me and my colleagues worked on to try to limit the exposure that healthcare professionals have during self-drive tests and such. So trying to brainstorm sort of smaller scale efforts and solutions that can still make an impact in the current pandemic, even if it's even if I'm not directly involved with research on COVID, let's say. That sounds fascinating. You've
0: mentioned brainstorming new ways to help healthcare providers. Could you expand on the specifics on how you are trying to alleviate those challenges they are facing daily in the current pandemic situation?
1: Absolutely. So in this specific project, my colleagues and I worked on limiting healthcare professionals' exposure to potential individuals who are COVID-19 positive And we tried to design a prototype framework through which individuals can conduct an automated COVID-19 symptom test in which they, it's sort of like a drive-through, but instead of there being someone, a healthcare professional or a nurse, there in person. It's actually sort of an automated robot of sorts that would conduct the swab or test for COVID-19 and then send the person on their way. So on the more side of limiting exposure, that's sort of what I've been involved in. But outside of that, I've really been trying to uh, reach out and spread awareness about mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, especially for a number of healthcare professionals, there is it's just such a trying time. And so since I'm in neuro and related fields, I'm trying to actively encourage knowledge and awareness about what exactly the after effects of a pandemic are. And even in these times of crises. Of course, you've been expanding
0: on medical professionals, but what would your advice be to those who are currently suffering from depression or anxiety due to the current situation
1: if you were the one to give advice? Right. I would say that, you know, we're obviously seeing increasing numbers of students our ages being affected by mental illness, especially during these times. And I think that part of the reason is because. You know, in the United States and many countries all around the world, we're very collectivist societies, which means that social relationships and seeing those relationships every day are very important to us. And now that everyone is interacting online more so, or perhaps not being able to interact even seeing someone across the street and just talking with them for a little while, we face that sort of social anxiety and not being able to communicate with those that we used to on a regular basis, which is oftentimes sort of a catalyst for many issues with mental health at these times. So I would say that from my personal experience, I found that even if it is sort of not as fulfilling to be able to chat with friends or peers from school or even family members through Zoom or FaceTime or Skype or different platforms like such, it's still a great way to keep in touch and still sort of maintain some sort of semblance of a normal time. And along with that, I'm just trying to, since I'm inside anyways, trying to eat well and occasionally go out for a walk or a run, go out for a bike ride, still social distancing, of course, and just trying to get lots of sleep and and spend more time with family just to bond better during these times. And of course, it depends from person to person. For a number of students, there's sort of the stress of school starting up again. What is the academic year going to look like next year? all of these different struggles in mind. But I think that the most important part of it for me is taking every day just as it is, day by day. And I think that just helps. It helps put things into perspective and not necessarily worry frantically about what is going to happen in the future at every moment, because there is a lot of uncertainty and it's hard to deal with that. It takes a toll on mental health.
0: Absolutely. It is beneficial to be future focused to a certain degree, but not in this undetermined situation of ours. I totally agree that keeping it personalized within the current borders is so essential. What I could sense, and I think you might agree with me on that, that beforehand, the danger in um, the overuse of social media lied in experiencing the highlight for your culture. But now it's kind of the opposite effect to seeing the bombardment of negative news and the old horrible things happening around the world. So it's the other side of the spectrum.
1: Right, absolutely agree. But I do think that even if we are, you know, bombarded by all these negative sort of depictions in media and such that maybe there is a sort of silver lining, a positive side on the flip side that Perhaps it is also an easier way to disseminate information more effectively during these times. I mean, even within my sort of small, smaller scale social media community, I've found that it's very useful for students to be able to share quick resources about COVID-19 developments, perhaps safe hygienic practices, and even with everything intersecting during this pandemic time with, I mean, social movements like Black Lives Matter coming and being able to quickly spread news and resources online has been also very effective. So I guess social media is either very positive or very negative during this time, especially.
0: Yes, it depends on our personal use. And it can be catalyst. But we are gonna determine what kind of materials in a chemical sense as well, we are putting on our stories. And you've pinpointed a little bit the educational aspect. Being an alumni mentor at the Society for Science and the Public Alumni College Match Program, what are the challenges students face transitioning into university during the pandemic?
1: There is honestly a number, and it's difficult to even begin at a certain point. I think the whole college experience has completely changed, and it is it is honestly from there is no day one of of walking into a new university and experiencing things like that anymore. There is no being able to catch dinner with friends from class and have those meaningful discussions in person anymore. And it really the pandemic is hitting at the heart of college experiences. And especially with transitioning into university, many students have not even been able to visit a college that they have committed to, to only see it an online uh, aspects and representations like YouTube videos or online tours. And that takes away a very large personalized connection for a number of students. I mean, college communities are really centered around school spirit and academic, integri- uh, academic spirit and sense of community and integrity and everything. And to have that taken away is extremely difficult because students can't necessarily picture themselves as a perfect fit in the college, it, there's a very dis, disjoint sort of a relationship there. And I think especially with not being able to see older peers or talk to older peers a lot of times too, students that would traditionally benefit from the underclassmen, upperclassmen academic relationship of sort of an older peer mentoring them, it's no longer as feasible to do such a thing. And so... I, you know, there's. I've talked to students who have found there's gaps in academic uh, perspectives, there's gaps in understanding what the social and every different point in terms of student organizations and clubs on campus and campus traditions, everything has been sort of blanked and washed off. And so students are very lost on even where to begin to define what makes college, What is the what is the essence of college that makes it different, so... Honestly, it's it's very it's a very trying experience, both for me and especially for mentees as well, because, I mean, I'm I'm a rising sophomore in college now and my first year got cut short, too. So I definitely can relate in that sort of a sense of knowing what sort of the before and after of this was. But it's it, it's very heart wrenching to just be in the works of guiding students through that adjustment, because it just reminds us all of what different times these are, but I guess we still can make the most of them through you know, online mentorships and still saying, staying in touch with each other like that.
0: It really is heartbreaking to hear all the obstacles you're facing because especially for U.S. universities, um, as you've expanded on, there is a sense of belonging to something bigger than self with the identity, history, and culture with the alumni members or just the generational exchanges happening on the campus. And the puns about um, being part of Zoom University was (laughs) fun for a while, but now it's becoming more of a shocking reality. So yes, we shouldn't give up hope. And I think that you are doing um, the maximum by, you know, not just taking care of your own situation, but also pouring into the lives of others and helping to alleviate those challenges they are facing.
1: Thank you. Yes, it's it's honestly very fulfilling for me as well to just be able to connect with younger students because I do see many similar semblances of my incoming first year experience. And I think a lot of older students would say that as well. So, it's it's just very fulfilling to be able to give back in some form and still make a difference on, you know, some younger students' lives, you know. And even if it's in a little way, it's still something.
0: Yes, passing on the torch. <laughs> a pivotal part of your research experience and your life passion, I can say that, is neuroscience. So what drew you close to this specific field?
1: Oh, I absolutely adore neuroscience and I can talk about it for on and on and on. And I think part of that comes from the field is so incredibly complex. And that's an understatement, I would even say it has so many interdisciplinary connections with other fields that i just believe makes neuroscience one of those fields that can truly capture what it means to be human's it i mean it ranges from connections to philosophy all the way to technology and business and economics and and biology and so many more fields and i think it presents a very well-rounded idea of what science can be which is a huge draw point for me because I'm personally very, I mean, my overarching idea of science and why I want to go into science is to one, make an impact on my community, of course, but also I think that science can bring us closer to understanding exactly what science is at its core. It's sort of this circular uh, component that reflects the circular component of being a human. And of course, we don't want to get too philosophically deep, but I think that neuroscience, with its Multiple lenses allows us to get sort of the most clear perspective on science and reduce bias as much as possible and truly just try to use scientific understandings to apply it and make a difference in every single aspect of our lives. It's a beautiful expansion, and just
0: as you were telling about all the different connections neuroscience is able to make, we can say that it's the corpus callosum of um, different scientific fields (laughs) connecting the different hemispheres. Also about the philosophical aspect If we think back to ancient Greece, perhaps they were not able to name the different regions of the brain, but they discovered the connection of the mind, soul, and heart. And you're also pouring into psychology. Which aspect of psychology are you most
1: intrigued by? I would say that I think issues of what happens in the brain when something goes awry, when something is wrong, is really interesting. And it's sort of a perspective that I gained early on in that when we understand what happens in the brain when something goes wrong, we can it tells us a lot more about how the brain functions in normal times as well. And so I would say that in the past, my previous experiences with psychology were related to depression and other uh, mental illnesses, and also later on veered towards sort of neurological disorders. And neurodegeneration, especially, was something that was very interesting. So I would overall bring it back to the idea that the researching what happens when things go wrong in the brain is just eye-opening in terms of we think we know what happens and then we find another connection and then go into a whole another loophole or something like that. So it's very, very fascinating to go in that direction. It leads you to developing new solutions when
0: the brain gives off those warning signals, uh, which are truly the physical embodiments of something deeper. And now we've been invested in a neuroscience. Let's do some brain work. Could you expand on the effects of fluctuations in attention on memory, which is part of your research experience at Columbia?
1: Absolutely. So I'm actually working um, with the team at the Alley Lab in Columbia University, and they're very interested in cognitive neuroscience. And a specific project that I'm contributing to is looking at specifically how our everyday changes in attention can affect our memory organization. So, for instance, if we are, let's say, we're in class, we're actively paying attention to the professor, we could Uh, you could think of that as being in the zone versus let's say you're staring out of the window and you see a bird and you're distracted and that could be considered out of the zone right so attentional fluctuations are basically looking at those changes between when you're in the zone and out of the zone and the periods in between that and looking at how your memory your memory of recalling that later on is organized it's something that a graduate student that I'm working with is looking at something called temporal organization of memory. So it's honestly very intricate. It's very exciting. And I believe that I've only learned in these past few months, just the tip of the iceberg. And it's just really fascinating to see that attention is something that we take for granted as just a part of our everyday normal life. We don't think about it very often, but there is still so much of an impact on our later experiences as well. I mean, memory is very valuable to our lives, I would say. It's brilliant.
0: Between the in the zone and out of the zone phase, the duration or your personal performance, like how much time you can spend in the in zone, is it affected by personality or personal
1: development? Can you make that duration longer? It's actually there's there's multiple factors like you definitely touched upon personality, your current mood for the day. Perhaps you're you're very tired or sleepy or things like that. There's a multitude of factors that go into how our attention really changes. And one day you could be in a certain way, maybe not too many fluctuations, but on a second day you might be all over the place. Maybe you had too much coffee or something like that. But (laughs) that's a very university related factor. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So the way that the study was set up before COVID-19, of course, was in an in-person format where people would be conducting a going through a task on a computer and later recalling different objects that had appeared on a screen that was shown to them. So the naming the objects part was sort of testing these memory changes Um, intentional changes. And so there's definitely many different factors that we're still not sure about, right? It's very difficult to test some forms of neuroscience in sort of more concrete uh, ways. I mean, how exactly do we measure attention? Through this study specifically, we're using reaction time as sort of a proxy. But there's many ways that things happen in the brain that we honestly cannot really tell or measure. I mean, neuroimaging has come a long way, but there are still certain things that we cannot exactly pinpoint how they happen in the brain. So this is just a very small example. There's there's many, many things that are yet to be discovered about the brain. Yes, there are
0: still undiscovered regions and new challenges to come, but you mentioned that you've had in-person sessions. How were you able to conduct this research during the pandemic? Could you you know, dive deeper into the literature or even conduct tests on your computer? Someone to measure the reaction time or what was the process like?
1: So we're actually, you're right on the spot. We're actually in the works of transitioning the study to an online format. The graduate student who I'm working with is sort of working out the code and the different setups for an online platform. And at that point, we're going to be releasing the study to open to participants online. And so we'll be collecting data from it online. Most of the directions, thankfully, were pretty much the same between the in-person and online formats. And I think that's because it was sort of set on a computer from the start. But definitely, there are some interesting changes. I mean, obviously, when you're at home versus in a closed-off lab setting, there are differences in the way that you are perceiving a task and things like that. So there are some more sort of con- uh, confounding factors, I would say, that'll likely come into play. But outside of that, definitely have been spending more time on literature review. I would say that the first few months, uh, two, three months that I was back home after college, well, sent, sent back home from college in around May, um, March, April, and May, I was definitely getting more in-depth into the background behind the research. And it was nice in a way to be able to dedicate more time to understanding thoroughly what the task was about because i think that it's one thing to know how the task works and the study works but another thing to understand why there were certain decisions that the graduate student and the pi made that framed the task how it is today so definitely was a very insightful experience and i think that this is a great time for really diving deeper into why our scientific you know lab experiments and studies are conducted the way they are through literature reviews, and simply reading up on interesting advancements and such.
0: Yes, digging deep into answering the whys behind those words in scientific literatures and truly getting the gist of it. When you're going to make it open for the participants, I would be more than glad to contribute by advertising on the platforms. And
1: I hope to see your project prosper in the future. Thank you so much. I'll keep you in
0: the loop. That's great. And your other ongoing research conducted at Columbia University Irving Medical Center is related to neuropathology. So which aspect of motor diseases does your work focus on?
1: Yeah. So this lab at the Irving Medical Center focuses on um, essential tremor and Parkinson's disease and a variety of other uh, motor degeneration diseases. And specifically my work right now which unfortunately was put on hold because of it's based in more of a wet lab setting in an actual in-person lab with microscopes and such, so can't exactly translate that online too much, unfortunately. Um, I was engaging with a technique called bright-field microscopy and using that to take pictures, actually, of different cells in the cerebellum where many implications of motor neurodegenerative diseases are, are implicated, basically. So it was really fascinating to just be able to take these wonderful, very vivid pictures of different cells and use those pictures later for analyses. Um, The PI of the lab and the postdocs are working on analyses of that right now, I believe, since that is more of a remote sort of an activity that is possible. But just the action of being able to take a piece of very, very thin um, cerebellar tissue and dive so deep, quite literally and physically, into looking at those cells and bringing those to light is honestly mind-blowing. Absolutely. It's a whole
0: new micro world saying a welcome sign to your eyes through the oculars of the microscope, or actually what type of microscope did you work on?
1: I believe it was a bright field microscope and... To be honest, we were working through a couple of di- couple of different models with the new microscope because the old one was sort of very old. <laughs> so it was getting an upgrade. <laughs> um, so I don't know the specifics of the new one too much, but I do believe it is a bright field microscope. It's based on, you know, light. And-
0: yes, it truly is a form of art looking at those teeny tiny presentations of cells enlarged um, to be perceived by reality. Expanded on different fields within neuroscience, but let's expand the horizon and think about the long term a bit. How do you envision the future of this very complex, uh, but definitely intriguing field of neuroscience?
1: At the moment, I believe that early neuroscience education and maybe in early elementary, middle, and high school, so K through under, 12 under college education, Neuroscience sort of fits into this gap between biology and psychology, and I think that in the future neuroscience will be, I mean it is extremely rapidly expanding at the moment and I think it will enlarge even further to encompass different intersections and gaps between fields. So I I believe that the perception of neuroscience won't be as a sort of subsect of biology or psychology in the future, but rather its own independent Field and a much larger field. So, and honestly, the multidisciplinary lens, I'm really excited to see how much further that will go because it's definitely cutting edge research at this point. And honestly, I can't even begin to imagine how it'll look like in 10 years. I'm just very, very excited for it
0: though. I think that neurobiology or neuroscience on its own will gain a new position and by combining CS, AI is such a prominent field, or one of the applications is the BCI, the brain-computer interface, which gives a lot of new routes um, in terms of research, but also raises some ethical issues. So I think there are going to be a lot of debates on it, but research will move forward and hopefully the most beneficial solution. Will be applied in real life.
1: Absolutely. Very, very true.
0: Science is not just spending time in the lab on your own, but also reaching out to others. You are a contributor at Columbia Science Review, organizing events such as the Social Brain Conference and I'm very interested that from your viewpoint, how can we strengthen the intersection between science and society
1: through communication? I believe that it's a matter of equipping people with science that is easily understandable. And even the most basic scientific knowledge, even the most kind of, as as you know, might be diluted down, but even the most basic scientific knowledge and facts and evidence can really empower people I believe. I remember that when I was in early on in school if I read this very complicated research paper that is full of jargon but then someone could sit down maybe a teacher or a mentor or a professional could sit down and walk me through what it meant. It was the feeling of sort of insight that made me walk out that day feeling a million, million times more comfortable and excited about science than when I walked in. So I think that making the translation of jargon and scientific research into something that an everyday person, a lay person could understand and see the connections of with their everyday life is essential. And I think that that is how we can add and even strengthen more further credibility in terms of the relation of science and government and politics, for instance, because there is sort of a gap in terms of how science is perceived. And I believe that science communication and advocacy are sort of the turning point um, in the 21st century of how science makes an impact in the world exactly it's the the missing link the missing puzzle
0: piece that holds the picture together and your personal story just reflects on such a crucial aspect that was actually communicated by albert einstein is that if you cannot explain it to a child. You don't understand it yourself. Talking in such specific jargons, it's kind of like a person trying to lift themselves up. But I think the key factor here is to go down to the current level of the person you are talking to. Really reach and target the audience
1: in that authentic way. Absolutely. I definitely agree. It's there's honestly so much that science communication do can do. And it honestly, every time that I think about it, even now, I'm just caught in awe and wonder of how wonderful it is. Yes. The beautiful thing is that you are not
0: talking about scientific communication on purely a theoretical level, but also... Your outreach has practical implications. Um, science outreach or scientific communication is an essential part of Simply Neuroscience. Could you expand on the mission of Simply
1: Neuroscience? Absolutely, I would love to. So, Simply Neuroscience is a nonprofit that I founded in May of 2019 that is really centered on interdisciplinary neuroscience. And it's especially focused on doing so through a framework of education, awareness, and outreach. And the educational side, I can walk through sort of the procedure of what it means is the educational side is creating these sort of content guides that younger students who don't necessarily have an exposure to neuroscience and related fields can get through utilizing these resources to self-study and simply learn more and share with their community. And we hope that that empowers them into also raising awareness about different mental health conditions and neurological conditions to really normalize speaking about mental health and sort of reduce the stigma of these in their communities. So we want to educate and equip students with these resources and our outreach model is also feeds into that in terms of we want to get these resources out to as many students as possible around the world because we believe that when students are empowered then communities are empowered and that's a Very solid concept for a lot of nonprofit orgs. But I think that specifically, we are trying to bridge this gap in neuroscience, especially because I know, like we talked about, it's connections to so many other fields. It isn't exactly just neuroscience. It isn't, the name has the irony itself. It isn't simply neuroscience, it goes much more beyond that. So that is sort of how our framework is uh, framed, modeled. (laughs) And it, outreach is definitely an ongoing process, and I think even in the future, we definitely do want to push this outreach and resources out in multiple methods and formats and languages too. We are recently uh, launched a translation initiative to make sure that resources are accessible to students for whom English may be a second language or maybe perhaps not too comfortable. So translating into languages that are much more accessible, like Mandarin, Spanish, French, Hindi and Vietnamese and a lot of other languages so that's sort of how I envision the future of Simply Neuro to be and honestly even current outreaches is amazing and I'm really excited for it to go further fantastic having that international aspect and um,
0: on that educational side actually a while ago I saw you guys promoting courses on edX and Coursera on neuroscience um, on different levels. And it's so great that you are bringing those opportunities closer to others that are actually already available on the internet and showing them the practical steps they can take if they are
1: interviewed by the field. Yeah, I honestly think that it is a matter of consolidating and equipping and making these resources more accessible for students because there are things out there on the internet for sure. But I think that Students might either not know about them or may not know how to search for them or even be intimidated by those larger concepts and courses, for instance. So I think that this sort of smaller, slower and more local and meaningful impact that Simply Neuroscience is doing with sort of leading students into the field slowly is much more flexible and applicable and accommodating to students' individual interests And then later on, you know, we can bring in those larger scale resources like Coursera and other formats and organizations as well. Absolutely. The method of conditioning
0: um, also justified by neuroscience. And I also like how you said that neuroscience is not solely depicted by the stereotypical representation. Um, I was reminded by Amy, uh, the Big Bang Theory. And she's depicted, of course, as a, a researcher in neuroscience. She actually in real life has a PhD in neuroscience. And you see like moments of her conditioning Sheldon to fall in love with her or conducting experiments with nicotine uh, addicted monkeys.
1: Neuroscience has a much
0: wider range of applications.
1: Absolutely does. And it's it's really fascinating to see um, her depiction on Big Bang Theory. It's quite interesting to see neuroscience and how it's viewed in popular media. sorts. it's something that's very interesting. I think it's a general concept with science, too, as broad as just how do we portray science on film and television and such is super curious.
0: Yes, and you are actually the one who uh, might know more than the average or for sure knows more than uh, the you know, average person sitting in front of the TV and understands the underlying concepts in a much uh, wider spectrum. So it must be definitely fun for you to
1: enjoy that. Absolutely. It's always great to see when science strikes right on television and you're like, yes, you're pumping your fist saying they got it right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's like when your uh, favorite book brings in the scene just as it was written in the original.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs)
0: And in terms of the future of simply neuroscience, how do you wish to expand um, what are some of the actionable areas you would
1: like to include in the future. I think that my current biggest push, and for the team as well, is that we're hosting an online conference towards the end of August called the Simply NeuroCon, which is four days of, honestly, neuroscience-filled events and speakers and panels and info sessions and everything, ranging from likely traumatic brain injury all the way through neuroscience and music and experienced postdocs and researchers coming in to talk about their work and sort of also giving information about careers in neuroscience so there's quite a bit of breadth in the conference that is honestly it's it's very time intensive right now with planning but I'm really excited to see how many students can benefit from those kind of events and resources but outside of the conference and even even more long term August is coming up so fast time is flying by I would say that long term would be implementing different formal courses through different collaborations with organizations. One that is on our radar is a collaboration with an organization called Beyond the Five, which provides online courses for students for free and Simply Neuroscience is working with them to develop a neuropsychology department that could provide these sort of introductory courses for students for free. And, you know, we talked about later that it's sort of a lead into neuroscience, we talked about earlier about how it's sort of a lead into neuroscience, and then students can go on to explore more kind of formal concrete courses, such as advanced neurobiology and such on Coursera. So that's one thing that's on sort of the initiative. And of course, I think the general framework of education and outreach, we definitely want to further through translation and honestly just increasing our audience and increasing students interests in the brain through perhaps even hosting mini events throughout the school year, all online, of course, to just make it more accessible. And of course with the pandemic we can't exactly have in-person things anymore. So uh, those are those are a couple of things that are on the radar right now. I think our biggest push is to, Make the NeuroCon a successful and inspiring and meaningful event, and really further that momentum into continuing to host those sort of informational uh, concepts and resources and events for students is the biggest push.
0: Yes, and despite the physical limitations we experience due to the pandemic, um, on the positive note, is that um, perhaps you can reach students that. Would not have been able to attend your conferences in person and having a much wider audience passionate about digging deep into how our brains essentially function and how it impacts our decisions
1: and personal interactions. Absolutely. There is, I'm really excited. Simply put, I'm really excited to see how much further this goes and how much we can really. Go outside of the neuroscience bubble. It'll be very interesting. Yes, breaking free. Sorry. Yes,
0: those memories affect our current behavior, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> very much do. <laughs> Maybe we should have a high school musical workshop at the conference. <laughs> oh my, just imagine. <laughs> Yes, like an
0: online Carpool Karaoke (laughs) blasting. I think it was such an essential part of our childhood, and no matter how old we are right now, I think that it still stays with us. That high school spirit—it really does. (laughs) H.S. you are, of course, invested in also offering advice to people, being the expert in understanding our cognitive functions. So what would your top tips be on how to lead a healthy lifestyle that promotes mental well-being, COVID here or not?
1: Oh my, I would definitely say that I'm in no way an expert, but perhaps I can give a little bit of perspective from being a student of neuroscience. And I think that Our brain is quite malleable, but it also needs its rest and it's, you know, the brain needs to be taken care of. And I think that a healthy lifestyle doesn't just focus on the body, but also taking time to oneself and specifically the mind. And mindfulness is a very large part of promoting a healthy brain lifestyle. And many people engage in, you know, meditations and yoga and such. And I'm honestly a huge advocate of that because I think that being mindful and coming back to this sort of calm, peaceful, understanding state for the mind is really interesting um, and useful too in everyday life. And honestly, I would say that it's just as important to take care of the brain as it is to take care of your body. I mean, if you're going to the gym and working out, for instance, you should also work out your brain sometime with some puzzles or something like that to keep your brain in the game as well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah keep your head in the game Just so... <laughs> <laughs> what is with all the high school musical references <laughs> it, this episode is loaded with that <laughs> I yeah. know get your head in the game <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, it's no brainer to mention that. So I read an article on, especially the part you mentioned, meditation or pre-praying, having not interrupted and secluded private space, and not just in the physical sense, but also a mental state of, you know, going deeper into. Your your thoughts and um, continuing the reevaluation and what has happened to you in the past, or maybe journaling can also help, which is a form of a reevaluation of past memories. Also, a pivotal part of your outreach is being the leadership board member called 500 Women Scientists. So, what are the steps of actionable intel that can empower women in STEM?
1: I think that's a great question. And I think that community is a very large part in being a woman in STEM. I think that having a supportive, collaborative community of other females and people who can support your STEM journey in general are valuable resources to touch in on when you need some support, when you need mentorship, someone to talk to for advice about your career, or perhaps experiences, even negative experiences that you might Experience in terms of racism or sexism, too. But overall, I would say that finding that supportive community, even for young girls our ages, there are a multitude of young women in STEM organizations out there. And honestly, a lot of my work focuses on exactly why building these communities are important and how we can empower these existing communities to support girls in STEM. So I would definitely say that. You know, if you are an older woman in STEM or a woman of color who would like to support younger folks who are from minorities and marginalized backgrounds, underrepresented in STEM, for instance, it's really important to be able to give back if you have the means because it continues the cycle of very positive mentorship and giving back. And it continues on and on and on. And of course, that if you are a young girl in STEM, person of color in STEM, I think supporting your fellow STEM, STEM advocates and interestees and uh, future scientists is really important. It's I think the all, it overall comes down to build community and collaboration and not competition. So
0: yes, it's so key. I agree with you on so many levels in terms of empowering women of STEM. Um, have you actually experienced negative comments? Um, or received negative feedback from others? And if yes, how did you process them?
1: I would say that definitely in high school, I'd faced a lot of that. And I'm thankful that in college, it has definitely diminished for the most part. I haven't really faced that as much. But in high school, I sort of felt this backhand negative pressure and people sort of diminishing or not acknowledging my work or my accomplishments or what I was passionate about. I mean neuroscience especially being a more specialized and advanced field some people would sort of scoff at the idea that I wanted to go into this field because it wasn't something that was prevalent in where I grew up. It was my hometown was very much tech and computer science and engineering focused, but when I said stated that those fields are cool but I'm not necessarily interested in leaning in that direction, people were kind of startled by it a little bit. And along that way Later on in high school, when I began getting involved in research and science fairs and such, for instance, whenever something went well for me, people would always try to diminish that effort and work as saying, oh, someone probably just gave you that opportunity because you were a woman, because they were trying to tokenize you as diversity, or they were sembling just did all the work for you and you're claiming the credit for it. Or what do you mean you got a 100 on that test or an A on that test? <laughs> I don't even know things like that. So, and that can definitely bring your bring your morale down a little bit, right? It's it's hard. It's heartbreaking to hear those kind of comments. But I think that however difficult that it is in the time being, I think what's important to remember is that you know how much work you put into something and the the results of that work aren't going to go anywhere. They're not going to go in the trash can, right? They're going to go into doing something more meaningful and positive later on. So I think keeping your head up and looking into the bright, bright future is, is crucial. I think it's, it's an important way to keep on going and knowing that you love and believe in your work. And finding people that support your work is important.
0: It's so inspiring that you could transform that experience and focus on long-term gain, sacrificing the short-term inconveniences per se. Something that deviates from the norm or that's considered usual is not embraced but looked down upon. And over time, you have to develop this mental shield being also mentally stable to continue to pursue that road that you've set for yourself absolutely absolutely agree well we've talked about mental stability but um let's move into the physical world because you are a united world taekwondo association grand national champion uh just the length of the title suggests is important <laughs> I'm very intrigued to ask you upon a specific aspect of the sport. What is a misconception about martial arts that you would like to
1: demystify here? My gosh, there's so many different points. (laughs) I would say that one, the very obvious point is that other than trained martial artists in films who are actually experienced, a lot of the different moves that you see might not be super practical or actually lined up with techniques in real life. So unless you're experienced in karate, don't go around and pretend to be the karate kid. It's not safe or good for you. You might hurt yourself. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> uh, you would be surprised at <laughs> Jackie Chan it should not be your inspirational
0: model in the middle of the living room for some example.
1: <laughs> That's absolutely true. We can't be Jackie we can't all be Jackie Chan without training, right? I would say that with martial arts it's it bridges different aspects of art and sport and well being too. And I think that most people can only think of martial arts as being a sport because they might see Taekwondo in the Olympics, for instance. But it's also just as valuable to look at it as an art form, as a as a catalyst and memory and recollection of cultural and uh, country's history, I mean Taekwondo is from South Korea, and it still the the cultural values of it permeate into my experience with Taekwondo and my my uh, studios kind of teaching methods. Also, so that is one part that is very valuable to keep in mind to think about, and also I would definitely say that being a part of my Taekwondo studio and the Taekwondo family has contributed to my uh, belief in myself, both physically, you know I can I feel empowered because I can protect myself and self-defense is crucial and super important, you know we want to fight off bad guys and of course, even with mental well-being, it's the core tenets, as they like to call it of different values such as perseverance and integrity really do echo on into, my education and my extracurriculars and things like that. So I would say that, oh man, how many years has it been? Five, six? I think I'm approaching my 6 year anniversary with Taekwondo this fall, actually in September. But it's it's been a long journey and I'm glad that I got into it middle school around that time because it honestly gave me a family and it gave me many skills that I still use into today. So great protection for women can save your life
0: essentially when you're in that situation. You cannot foresee the future so it's better to be prepared than to be started by any upcoming experience and uh, just as you said being confident in the skills that you have gained through the training process. I read an article about martial arts and they said that one of the foundational lessons they teach you is that The the skills you gain should not be used in a violent situation or to be misused as a tool for violence, but the strength lies in actually controlling your strength, essentially. And that coordination and self-control is one of the key concepts um, they give to you.
1: That is 100% correct. Um, One of the values in Taekwondo that every white belt starts off learning is that it must always be used for defense and for protecting oneself. And very internally faced, it's not meant to, you know, go off and hurt someone. It's meant to build you as a person and equip you with skills that in a time of need, time an urgent need, but in no way should it ever be used in an aggressive manner, if that makes sense. So honestly, 100% agree with that. Um, martial arts is not... You know, we don't learn taekwondo and go off to go box in a box in a ring somewhere against, you know, bad guy someday. It's it's meant to protect you and just make you more confident and safe in those sort of uncomfortable situations, but never to first attack or hurt. Martial arts has a bad rep for being aggressive, you know, but it's it's very peaceful as well. Absolutely. Well you are not part of that (laughs) game,
0: for sure. (laughs) Closing question and an if question per se is conducting or having conversations with bright minds living today and in the past and you've actually conducted interviews with acknowledged scientists but if you had the chance to talk to anyone again living today or in the past at a dinner conversation who would you invite and why This
1: is such a difficult question because there's so many people out there. (laughs) Why are you doing that? (laughs) Um, I think that one person that stands out, of course, uh, two people actually, um, who we know as Elizabeth Blackwell and Rosalind Franklin, they're actually two amazingly astounding women who I had the opportunity to research further into their backgrounds and um, work on medical history documentaries before. But honestly, Rosalind Franklin, we know of as taking the photograph, uh, photograph 51, I believe, of DNA and the helical structure, the double helix structure. And Elizabeth Blackwell was the first American female physician. And both of them are honestly simply powerhouses in their fields. They are pioneers. And I would love to understand and actually get to speak with them about the whole, the idea of being an empowering woman, In STEM, in those times, way back when, right? And I know that reading back into history, we can try to get an idea of what times were like then because it was very difficult to be a woman in STEM. But I think that truly speaking with them and understanding what they went through would be a whole, a whole nother experience. And I would, that would be amazing. I would, it would blow my mind if I could actually talk to them. (laughs) Without
0: a doubt, they were the powerhouse houses the mitochondria of the scientific world
1: (laughs) they really were
0: (laughs) and it's so true um i cannot exactly say the title of the tv show but it's a spanish language tv show of bringing um, different people from the past and they are united for well, a mission per episode. And it's uh, very exciting. And one of the protagonists of that story is actually a woman from the 18th century. And she was the first ever woman in the course of history to attend university. Uh, it's just crazy to witness how much life has changed and how the opportunities for women in STEM have uh, broadened
1: I think I've actually now that you speak about it I think I've actually watched that show is the is the female character's name Amelia or something yes I think <laughs> it's they they go through doors and they travel in time right exactly so I, I used to watch that show it was such a good show yeah I absolutely agree I and whatever Amelia was on the screen I'd be like yeah you go girl Woo!" <laughs> The real glow-getter of the series. It really is. The sensible one, too. (laughs) True. Yeah, that's
0: so great that you also saw that show. I think it was brilliant. The the whole representation, the underlying story, how they brought together the concept. Yeah, it was a great show, hands down. (laughs) Now we are at the This or That Game section. Very serious. Uh, Chocolate or Vanilla? vanilla the next one is summer or winter winter you you live in california right
1: um... <laughs> yes i do live in california but california summers have been really hot recently and now that i've moved to new york for school i don't mind winter i mean i can stay cozy inside so it's kind of a weird dynamic <laughs> yeah really between the two
0: poles in terms of weather <laughs> that's right <laughs> it's a bit deep, deeper but are you fascinated by the idea or the way to
1: implementation oh this is a good one i think i think the way i i am i do consider myself a bit of a visionary and i do like creatively brainstorming for the future but i think i feel more of a sense of satisfaction when I know that things can actually happen and rationally happen. So I think the action of putting things into action, it speaks much more to me than brainstorming, though I do love ideating and brainstorming still. Yes, it's the
0: combination of the two. But yes, so many ideas are being produced by our brain. But of course, we select which one we are going to use and truly make it the real deal. I think that being a visionary is so key in terms of research experiences too, because that underlying intuition and openness to explore new ideas is so key in terms of um, boosting your creativity.
1: It's very true. Running or swimming? Running. karaoke hands down. Hands down. I love karaoke. (laughs) And I can't dance for my life. (laughs) Yeah, so perhaps singing a high school musical
0: song. You got it.
1: Let's (laughs) when's the invite, let's go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. And the last question is something that really wraps up all the things we've been expanding on in this podcast episode. And that is
1: what does science mean to you? I think touching back on I briefly talked about this in terms of neuroscience, but I believe science is a way of understanding what science is, <laughs> and it's and it's very interesting to say that, but I because I think that the skills and the efforts that we put into science help us understand the world and ourselves in return, and that helps us understand why as humans we want to understand science. So science is very much not a linear sort of an, a network per se, but it is very circular, I believe. And might I even make a reference to say that science could be considered the circle of life? <laughs> got you. <laughs> <laughs> It truly is applicable here in terms of
0: bacteria as well, because their DNA is circular and, well, it's the foundational element to having life in the biological sense.
1: (laughs) That's very true.
0: (laughs) I really enjoyed your insightful expansion on neuroscience and, you know, breaking down the borders, the specific and very intriguing field that contains a lot of hope for us in the future also for your bits of wisdom you shared about mindfulness and the cool research projects you've continued so thank you for coming on today's episode and being part of the drop the stem gang
1: thank you so much i had a wonderful time today and sharing and hearing your thoughts as well and i'm looking forward Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast
0: is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.